0: Well, if you would please take out your Bibles and turn to the book of 2nd Samuel as we continue in our study of this book today we come to chapter 22. And for the past few weeks we've found ourselves in the epilogue of this book. Uh, an epilogue in which the author leaves us with a few additional narrative stories that help us to better understand and frame everything that we've already read in the books of Samuel about the life of David. And so last week we looked at those four short stories from the end of chapter 21 about David's valiant men defeating Philistine giants. And those stories about Abishai and Sibekai and those guys helped us to see that for all of David's military success that we've read about in the books of Samuel, he was hardly a one-man show. Now, he had many faithful and valiant men with him who helped him to be as successful as he was. And so the epilogue passage helped us to look back and better understand all that we've already read about David's military successes. Our passage this morning in 2 Samuel 22, basically functions in the same way. It also helps us to rightly understand all that we've already read about David's military successes. But this time, we go beyond the human soldiers. We go beyond the human bravery. We go beyond the human instruments. We go past those secondary causes to the ultimate cause, the cause behind every other cause, referring, of course, to God himself. Why was David so remarkably successful on the battlefield? Like, how is it that he survived so many attempts on his life? How did he escape so many close calls? How did a man who fought so many battles basically retire undefeated? Yes, he had Abishai's and Sibachai's. Yes, he had El- Elhanan's and Jonathan's. But most importantly... He had the Lord God Omnipotent. And that's the point of our chapter. David doesn't want us to just see him as this great and powerful king. No, he wants us to see his God as a great and powerful God. But that point is made slightly differently than we're used to, at least in our study of 2 Samuel. Because you'll notice something about our passage. Just look at the chapter in your Bibles. You see the indentation. You see how the lines are structured, and you say, well, this looks kind of like a psalm. Well, The reason it looks kind of like a psalm is because it is a psalm. Second Samuel 22 is basically the same text as Psalm 18. Let's save a few minor changes that were probably made to adapt what David says here for a more congregational setting. Remember that the psalms are meant for public worship to the choir master, And so there's a few minor adjustments here and there, but basically the text of Psalm 18 is the same thing as the text of Psalm 22. Sorry, 2 Samuel 22. And so the point of the chapter, the point of the chapter that God is the one who ultimately delivered David from every peril, every trial, every enemy, and so God is the one who should receive all the praise, it's made not through narrative, which is what most of 2 Samuel is, but it's made through Poetry. It's made through song. It's made through a psalm. Here towards the end of what's been a very narrative-heavy book, here's a song written by the sweet psalmist of Israel that gives us this rare glimpse, at least in the books of Samuel, a rare glimpse into the heart of David. Like we've read about all these battles. We've read about all these wars. We've read about all these rebellions that he's put down But as all that's happening in his life, like, how's he processing it? What's he thinking? Where's his trust? This psalm gives us a glimpse into David's heart and helps us to answer some of those questions. So with all that said, let's read this psalm now. I read somewhere this week that the current average lifespan of a song in the top 100 charts is about 45 days. To put it another way, the uh, average song that makes its way into our culture's awareness remains relevant for about a month and a half. But here we are. Uh, we are about to study this song that David released 3,000 years ago. Still very relevant, as relevant as the day that he wrote it. That's what happens when your songs are divinely inspired. That's a longer passage. Uh, The equivalent psalm, Psalm 18, is, at least by number of verses, I think the fourth longest psalm in the Psalter. So it's a long psalm, but uh, listen carefully, listen attentively, as I read 2 Samuel chapter 22. Hear the word of the Lord. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said... The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. But from his temple he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because He was angry. The smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy, thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord and the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you, I can run against the troop And by my God, I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He has made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness has made me great. You give a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, those who hated me, and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations." And sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king, and show steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. And one thing that we as careful Bible readers should always remember is that the Bible, well, there's one ultimate author, the Holy Spirit, and so there's a wonderful unity to the scriptures. The Holy Spirit wrote through various men using various literary mediums, right? various genres. And so you can't just read all genres in the same way. And that is, you can't read a historical narrative in the same way that you read an epistle. And you can't read an epistle the same way you read a prophetic book. And you can't read a prophetic book the same way you read poetry. So if you think about 2 Samuel 22, this psalm, this poem, this song, we need to think about it slightly differently than we've been thinking about most of the other chapters from the books of Samuel, which are largely historical narratives. And one major difference between historical narrative and poetry is that poetry is often not organized chronologically. Uh, Nathan made this point when he so helpfully broke down Psalm 30 for us a few weeks ago, how that psalm goes out of chronological order? Well, the same thing's going on here in Second Samuel 22. It's like this mishmash in terms of chronological order because the point of the psalm isn't so much to give an orderly historical account of David's battles and escapes. It's to praise God for who he is and what he's done in those battles and escapes. But in order for us to better understand why David is praising the Lord so exuberantly here, I think it'll be helpful for us to study this passage in a chronological way. And so here's your four points for this morning Four themes of this psalm that are kind of chronologically organized. We'll just kind of go through them one by one and going through the chapter. Point number one, David cries out to the Lord. Point number two, the Lord hears David. Point number three, the Lord raises David. And point number four, David praises the Lord. So David cries out to the Lord, the Lord hears David, the Lord raises David, and David praises the Lord. So let's start with point number one. David cries out to the Lord. But why is he crying out? Check the intro. Look at verse one. It's because of his enemies. Saul is specifically mentioned there, but he's definitely not alone. It's, quote, all his enemies. There's lots of people who are coming after him, not just Saul. It's also the Philistines. Remember them from last week. Good old Ishbi Benoob and his six-fingered friends. And it's the Edomites, and it's the Syrians, and it's the Ammonites, and it's the Jebusites. And it's not just foreigners. It's also... Look at verse 44, where David references strife with my people. It's also his fellow Israelites. Fellow Israelites like Ishbosheth the contender, Sheba, the rebel, Shimei, the blasphemer, Ahithophel, the schemer. Most painfully, for sure, like Jesus said, a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Most painfully, Absalom, his own son. As a matter of fact, You go through the chapters of 2 Samuel, there's only a handful, maybe four out of the 24, depending on how you count, in which David isn't dealing with one of those enemies. These enemies almost overwhelmed him at times. They just put him on the brink of death, like he once told his best friend Jonathan, there is but a step between me and death. Even last week, we saw how but old Ishbi Benob was like this close to killing a wearied and tired David. Now, look how David describes those close calls in verses five and six. For the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. Now that, by the way, is classic. Hebrew poetry, rhyming ideas in those four lines. And so the waves of death, the torrents of destruction, the cords of Sheol, the snares of death, that's basically four variations of the same thing. And they encompassed him, they assailed him, they entangled him, they confronted him. And so these enemies, they've got him feeling like he's completely underwater, like he's drowning, right? The waves of death, you see that word picture just coming over him. And he feels like a like a helpless prey in the grip of a mighty hunter. And so he says he's been caught in the snares, like a hunting trap, the snares of death. And look at how in verse 18 David plainly acknowledges that they were too mighty for me. We might read the narratives of 2 Samuel. Because David is just constantly victorious. Like, go ahead, name me a battle in the narratives of 2 Samuel, like a war that he lost. Like, you can't. And so we might come away with the impression that David is just this ultimate warrior, like completely undefeatable, untouchable, unassailable, never in any danger, completely sufficient and capable in his own strength. But David here testifies otherwise. He confesses his weakness, his frailty. His inability in the face of his many strong enemies. They were too mighty for me. And in that desperation, knowing that he can't overcome these enemies in his own strength, David just cries out for the Lord's salvation. Now look at verse 7. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. Point number one, David cries out to the Lord. Friends, is this not, in some way, the experience of every child of God? Where, regardless of how undefeatable and untouchable and unassailable we might appear to be on the outside, and perhaps most of all, when we're feeling completely self sufficient completely capable in our own strength, how God graciously allows us to go through trials, allows us to experience hardships, and allows us to face enemies so that we would come to the same conclusion as David. They were too mighty for me. They were too mighty for me. So that any delusions of self-reliance, self-sufficiency might be squashed, and we instead turn to him in our distress so that we might learn exactly what Paul did as a result of his thorn that God's grace is sufficient for his power is made perfect in weakness so when I am weak, then I am strong so we might learn exactly what Jesus taught his disciples that apart from me, you can do nothing whether it's literal enemies who are seeking your life like David here, or it's other trials like persecution, financial hardship, stage four cancer, death of a loved one. God allows you to hit rock bottom and come to the end of yourself so that he might experientially reveal to you what you've known in theory all along, that you can cry out to him, that you ought to call upon him. And if that's what our distress produces, a greater dependence on God, a greater reliance upon our heavenly father, a heart that truly calls upon the Lord, well, that in turn can allow us to not only bear with and endure our trials, but even be thankful for them. Point number one, David cries out to the Lord. Which leads us to point number two, the Lord hears David. Look at the second half of verse seven. In my distress I called upon the Lord, to my God I called. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. And when I say the Lord hears David... We don't mean that in a, you know, well, God hears all things because he's omniscient kind of way. No, David means it in a, my cry came to his ears. Like, he is desirous to answer my cries kind of way. Now, why does God hear David? Why does God answer his prayers for deliverance? Well, ultimately, it's because of God's free grace. It's because God has graciously made David his child. It's because God has graciously chosen to bestow immense favor on David. It's because God has graciously made promises to David, like, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. David knows that. And so look at what he says in verse 31. As he reflects on this deliverance, he says, the word of the Lord proves true. Like, God keeps his promises. And that's why he's a shield for those who take refuge in him. And so ultimately, it's because God is a truthful, faithful, promise-keeping, gracious God that God hears David's cries. But there's also another reason that David gives here, that David makes reference to here in this psalm, and you'll see it in verses 21 through 25. It's his righteousness, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt and the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. Now you read that. You said, wait a minute. Doesn't that seem incompatible with everything that we've just read in 2 Samuel? I have kept the ways of the Lord. From his statutes I did not turn aside. Like, I don't know, what does Uriah the Hittite have to say about that? So clearly David is not referring to an absolute perfection, an absolute sinlessness. And a quick read of Psalm 32 or Psalm 51 or any number of David's psalms would show that he has no delusions of his own sinlessness. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David has sinned, for sure, and he knows it. But he's also been broken over his sin. He's also repented of his sin. And he's also found forgiveness for his sin from a gracious God. So these verses here are not referring to moral perfection or sinlessness. Otherwise, David couldn't possibly speak them. They're referring rather to his genuine pursuit of God. To his genuine desire to live holy and upright before him. An imperfect pursuit and desire. That on one particular occasion, in its imperfection, basically destroyed his life. But a pursuit and desire that in light of that sin still pleaded with God to create in me a clean heart. And renew a right spirit within me, a pursuit and desire that characterized his life as a whole, so that when the biblical narrator looked back on David's life, that one incident was marked as the exception and not the rule. First Kings fifteen five, because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. That's the righteousness and cleanness that he's referring to here. This general kind of wholehearted commitment to God, this pursuit and desire for God as imperfect and fallible as it may have been. Now, just to be clear on something here, David is not saying that the basis of his acceptance by God was that righteousness. No, no one is righteous enough to merit anything with God. All sinners are accepted by the free grace of God alone, by the death of Jesus that David looked forward to and that we now look back on, by trusting in the gracious promises of God. But it's like what James chapter 2 says. A genuine faith will always produce works. What David refers to here is keeping the ways of the Lord, this pursuit and desire for God. And in response to that pursuit and desire of God, a pursuit and desire, of course, that God graciously grants to his children, well, God hears their prayers. That's a principle we see all over the scriptures. That God gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Or, as David says here in verse 28, you save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. Humble obedience to the Lord brings blessing. Proud defiance against the Lord brings his opposition. And so look at how David points out later in the psalm that even as God hears his cries, well, God does not hear the cries of his wicked enemies. Look at verse 42. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, just like David cried to the Lord. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. These enemies found out the hard way. The truth of Psalm 66, 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So point number two, the Lord hears David. Which brings us to point number three, the Lord raises David. So God hears David's cries for desperation, but it's not just that he hears. It's that in compassion and grace, he responds. Look at verses 8 through 16. You'll see some really powerful metaphors from nature there to describe that response. God's anger is like an earthquake, verse 8. His presence is like the darkness and the winds and the clouds, verses 10 to 12. His voice is like the thunder, verse 14. His arrows are like lightning bolts, verse 15. So the overall picture that David's painting here is that of God moving heaven and earth like dramatically intervening in his creation in a powerful way to save his child. And that's exactly what he accomplishes. Because God's not like a well-meaning parent who would do anything to help his child, but at the end of the day could only try his best. No, he is the Lord God Omnipotent. Now this is he who is mighty that we were talking about. So those waves of death, You remember those that were encompassing David so that he felt like he was drowning? Well, look at verse 17. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. The Lord raises David. And those enemies that were overwhelming him, they're too mighty for me. Well, verse 18, he rescued me from my strong enemy when everything was sinking and and shaking, when all around his soul gives way, verse 19, the Lord was my support. And when the snares of death, the snares of death had seemingly trapped him so that he had nowhere to go, well, verse 20, he brought me out into a broad place where he's able to freely roam around again. So whether he's referring to the near misses of Saul or Absalom, or HB Benob, or the Philistines, or anyone else. It's like David said elsewhere many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And much of the second half of this psalm, starting in around verse 29, is basically much of the same. It's further reflections on the same truth. Because of God, his lamp, look at verse 29, David's darkness is lightened. And because of God, verse 30, David can run against a troop or, figuratively speaking, leap over a wall. Because of God, look at verses 37 through 43, David is able to, look at all those verbs there, pursue and destroy and consume and thrust through and beat and crush and stamp down. Like how many different ways can you describe it, David? all of his enemies. Because of God, verses 44 through 46, some of David's enemies just gave up. They just surrendered. As soon as they hear his voice, they just lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. But notice how through the entire section, even as he recounts his own victories and his own successes, David gives all the credit and all the honor and all the glory to God. Because even where, to the undiscerning, untrained human eye, it might look like it's all David. David knows better. Look at verses 40 and 41. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, those who hated me, and I destroyed them. Point number three, the Lord raises David. But before we move on from this point, I want to think a little more about some of this language that David uses in verses 8 through 16. The language of earthquakes, fire, thunder, and lightning. Because, well, like, wait a minute, David we've read all of 1st and 2nd Samuel. Like, we've read your life. None of this stuff happened in your battles. None of these things happened in your deliverances. Like, it did happen in the Exodus. Remember the plagues and the, the parting of the Red Sea and all that? And it happened at Mount Sinai when God revealed himself to Israel through thunder and lightning and smoke and fire. It did happen when Joshua fought against the Canaanites and You remember the hailstones that God threw down killed more enemies than the Israelites did? It did happen when Samuel fought against the Philistines. Remember how God intervened with thunder so powerful that it threw them into confusion and defeat? But as we read through David's victories in 1 and 2 Samuel, as we read about David's narrow escapes, As we read through all of David's deliverances, I don't know, they seem so ordinary in comparison. There's no earthquakes. There's no parting of the seas. There's no stopping of the rivers. There's no sun standing still. But I think that's precisely David's point. That even absent the natural miracles that God has displayed in times past, God's intervening hand of sovereignty and his perfect orchestration of providence showed him to be just as present in those unmiraculous, seemingly unspectacular deliverances of David than if he split the earth open to instantly swallow all of David's enemies. David, by the eyes of faith that God has given him, he's able to see God's gracious hand behind everything, every victory every escape, every deliverance. And so he uses the language of miracles, the language of these prominent displays of God's power intervening in creation to describe how a powerful God has acted on his behalf to preserve him and to grant him victory in all of these apparently ordinary ways. And so when Saul is throwing spears at David multiple times from close range and somehow goes over for 3, just put him on the Mets, <laughs> David sees God's sovereign power, akin to the foundations of the heavens trembling and quaking. And when Saul comes this close to catching David, You remember the story where he's on one side of the mountain and David's on the other side of the mountain and Saul is this close to catching him and then all of a sudden there's that emergency back at home with the Philistines that Saul has to attend to. David sees God's sovereign hand, God's sovereign power, akin to devouring fire coming from his mouth. And when David defeats the Edomites or the Moabites or the Syrians or whoever it is, In what any untrained eye would see as a regular, old-fashioned military victory, David sees God's sovereign power, akin to his throwing arrows of lightning to rout his enemies. Friends, we are not David. We are not God's anointed king. But David's God is our God. And the same omnipotent, sovereign God who worked his sovereign providence for David over and over, that same God has promised us that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And so we ought to, by the eyes of faith, see his sovereignty working in our lives. In all our deliverances, in all our close calls, in all our victories— And even more than that, we should, like David, be very quick to praise him for all of his kind providences in our lives. But point number three, the Lord raises David. Which brings us now to point number four, David praises the Lord. Now we come to the beginning of the psalm. told you we were going to go out of order. We're now looking at verses two through four. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. But depending on how you're counting, that's something like nine descriptions of God. In the lead-off position is the Lord is my rock, and we actually see that imagery used five times in this psalm, twice in the beginning, once in verse 32, twice in verse 47. The rocks were places of refuge, not only from the elements, but also from your enemies. David learned that firsthand when he was on the run from King Saul. Remember the cave of Adullam? Remember the rock of escape? But it doesn't stop there. It's almost as if David starts with the Lord is my rock, and then he quickly realizes, well, that's not enough. The Lord is my rock, but he's so much more. He's also this and that and this and that. There's just not enough words in the Hebrew language. There's just not enough metaphors from life to adequately describe the awesomeness of God. It's like the song says, a thousand men could not compose a worthy song to sing. that praise isn't confined to just verses 2 to 4. It's like this running theme throughout the psalm. We see it all over the place. It's like David can't contain himself. And so verse 31, this God, his way is perfect. Verse 32, who is God but the Lord? Who is a rock except our God? Verse 47, the Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. But don't miss this. In all his praise, David doesn't just say that the Lord is a rock or a fortress or a stronghold or a savior. He's my rock, my fortress, my stronghold, my savior. That small grammatical change It makes literally an eternity of difference. Like Luther once said, the life of Christianity consists in possessive pronouns. My. There is an eternity of difference between saying God is a savior and God is my savior. An eternity of difference between Christ died for my sins and Christ died for sinners. Demons can say that. Christ died for sinners and shudder. Only the true child of God can, by faith, say, Christ died for my sins. Point number four David praises the Lord. Point number one David cries out to the Lord. Point number two, the Lord hears David. Point number three, the Lord raises David. Point number four, David praises the Lord. That's the text of our psalm in 2 Samuel 22, a.k.a. Psalm 18. We're not quite done yet because there's those two verses at the end there, verses 50 and 51, verses that might easily fall under. Point number four, David praises the Lord. But there's something even more significant going on there. Because verses 50 and 51, they point us to the bigger picture. This is not only a psalm about David praising God for his salvation. It is pointing to something much greater, uh, much larger. And we get a hint of that in verse 51. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Forever. That's a clear reference to the promise, the promises of 2 Samuel 7. Showing steadfast love to David and his offspring forever. You remember 2 Samuel 7. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. We talked about it back when we studied the chapter, but that one word forever... It appears three times in that chapter, and that one word shows us that these promises couldn't have been ultimately fulfilled in Solomon, in the kings of Judah, because they didn't reign forever. They reigned for like 400 years. No one's confusing 400 years for forever. No, forever is referring to something entirely different, an entirely different king through whom that throne would be established. A forever king, who, while being the offspring of David, the son of David, was altogether unlike David. A forever is clearly referring to King Jesus. And it's not just verse 51. Now look at verse 50. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. And you say, Oh, that verse sounds familiar. Maybe you've been in Romans in your daily devotions because this is what Romans 15 says. I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. That is 2 Samuel 22 verse 50. And so Paul is telling us that that verse is pointing to something much greater than just David praising God for his salvation. It's pointing to the redeemed of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, praising God for the salvation that comes through Jesus. And so this psalm, and you remember how Jesus talks about how everything written about me in the psalms must be fulfilled. This psalm is about Jesus. Jesus. Point number one, Jesus cried out to the Lord. It was in the garden of Gethsemane that the son of David cried out, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. In anguish, as he prepares to take upon himself all the sins of all his people, even though he lived a perfect life, Always in the will of the Father, he would bear the wrath of God for sinners like you and me. In that anguish, Jesus cries out from the depths of his soul. Hebrews 5, chapter 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. And as he goes through the cross... The metaphor of David becomes the experience of Jesus as the waves of death sweep over him, as the snares of death entrap him, as Christ dies for our sins. And as Jesus bears our judgment on Calvary, well, God reveals some of those manifestations of his power that David wrote about in a metaphorical sense. He got darkness for three hours. The earth shook. Rocks were split. Point number one, Jesus cried out to the Lord. Points number two and three, we'll take these ones together. The Lord heard Jesus, and the Lord raised Jesus. I only read part of Hebrews 5, 7 earlier. Let's read the whole verse now. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus was heard. God answers the prayer of Gethsemane, your will be done, because he who was able to save him from death, he hears Jesus and he raises him from the grave. This Jesus God raised up. Or to use the language of David in verse 17, He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters, those waves of death. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive to rule and reign forever. He's conquered the grave. He's conquered death. Paul tells us the last enemy to be destroyed is death. But Jesus has, you remember all of those verbs in verses 37 to 43, uh, Jesus has destroyed and consumed and thrust through and beat and crushed and stamped down death forever. Death is swallowed up in victory. Points number two and three, the Lord heard Jesus and the Lord raised up Jesus. Finally, point number four, As a result of points number one through three, uh, because Jesus bore our sins, because he died for our sins, because he rose again, point number four, Jesus' people praise the Lord. Jesus' people praise the Lord. Brothers and sisters, you and I, because of Christ's work on our behalf, we get to share in a victory that's much greater than anything that David experienced on the battlefield. We have been forgiven of our sins. We have no condemnation before a holy God. We have an eternity with Jesus to look forward to. Death has forever lost its sting. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. But friend, if you are not a Christian today, the good news of the gospel is that this salvation, this victory, can be yours. If you would repent of your sins, if you would trust in Christ, trusting him alone for your salvation, well, you too can be saved. And for those of us in this room who have trusted in that gospel, who've shared in that victory over sin, death, and the devil, not because of anything that we've done, but entirely because of the gracious work of Christ, does it not stand to reason that if David so exuberantly praises and sings and rejoices in the earthly deliverances that he experienced, that we, as we think about our eternal deliverance, our souls forever rescue, our salvation, That our praise and our singing and our rejoicing should be even more emphatic. Let's pray. Father, these are they that testify of Jesus. Lord, give us eyes to see Christ in every page of the Bible, in every psalm, in every narrative of the Old Testament. And in particular in this chapter of Second Samuel, pray that we would have eyes to see Christ, to place our full trust in him and to rejoice in the salvation that he brings. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.